Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the Relentlessly Informative. I study ghosts, Fortiana, fashion history, and death. And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends, and the impossible. Just before we get started, Chris, how have you been in the last month or so? Doing well, but I want to congratulate you. You were joint runner-up in the Catherine Briggs Awards for The Boggart. Marvelous. Uh, such a good book. And they, they said some really kind things about it, I thought. I'm preening myself. Yes, I, I was very happy. And you should know, Chris, that one of my life ambitions is to win the Catherine Briggs Awards sooner or later. Catherine Briggs is one of my heroes. And if one day I can carry off that prize, I will be very, very happy. Next year. There's always next year. So now we're going to talk about a 19th century Irish fairy witch. This case went to trial. And so what I'm going to start with is a transcription from the testimony of Constable Williams Reeves at Mary Doheny's trial. This says, uh, Mr. Vowell is the lawyer. And he's asking, do you know William Mullins? Witness. Yes, he's my wife's father. In May last three years, he died in my house and I buried him in Rathgormick. Mr. Vowell, do you know anything of him now? Witness, I am told he came to life again, Mr. Vowell. Who told you that? Witness, the prisoner, sir, and she asked me and my son to go with her up to Nocro. We went and remained there ten minutes. She then asked me to look in some direction. I did so, and pointing down the field, she asked me, did I see anything? I said, I see my father-in-law, William Mullins, Mr. Vowell. Now, do you really believe you saw him? Witness, I do believe I saw him, for he was no more than twenty yards from me, Mr. Vowell. Were you frightened, laughter in the courtroom, when you saw the dead man rising? Witness, I was not, renewed laughter in which the constable himself joined, adding, it is such a rare case to come before a court that it is no wonder people laugh. But, your worship, there are instances of the like occurring. Other people who died have come to life, but not to my own personal knowledge. So tell us about the legal case here, Simon. It really is a remarkable case. We should say straight away that 19th century Ireland rarely disappoints in folklore terms, but here they carry away the Catherine Briggs Prize. I mean, it really is the best of the best. This is a case from 1864. There were three conjoined legal cases. In September of 1864, preliminary examination took place at Carrick-on-Sur, which is a town in southwestern Ireland. And a woman was brought before the local magistrates accused of fraudulently taking things from a policeman's family. And this woman, who was known locally as a fairy witch, had convinced this family that five members of the family who had died would come back from the dead. And in case any listeners are wondering, well, where are the fairies? This is all about ghosts. The five individuals were living in the local Fairy Hill. And this is a question we'll need to talk about later, but it's something that's very much present in parts of 19th century Ireland. The idea that some of the dead go to reside with the fairies. After a preliminary examination, the magistrates decided there was a case to follow. And so they took it to the petty assizes. 
And this was later in the same week, the 8th of September, Mary Doherty, the fairy woman, was brought in front of them. And here the case becomes particularly interesting because we have the defence counsel who's quite aggressive in his questioning of the various witnesses. And what this means is the local newspaper picks up lots of details of the case that otherwise we would miss. At the end of the petty assizes, the magistrates decide that this is serious enough that this should go to the quarter sessions. And the case goes there in late October. And there, again, we have a very detailed questioning of a series of individuals, including those from the families, who were convinced that five dead members of the family were coming back to life. And they talk about their experiences, not just that the fairy woman had told them that these people would come back to life. These are fathers, these are sons, these are sisters. But they were actually shown these individuals by the fairy woman, by Mary Doherty. So we have an extraordinary case where witnesses stand up and say, well, you say she's being fraudulent, but I saw my dead father-in-law. I talked to my dead son. It really is an amazing story because these people are seeing what they think are their relatives very close up. This is not just, oh, we're, we're a football field away in the dusk and we see them. No, I'm standing nose to nose with just a pane of glass between us. It's a very, very odd case. I suspect we'll both agree that Mary Doherty was a fraudster, that the case against her was correct, but how on earth she pulled off this illusion. Um, Let's talk about this and enjoy it later, but was it a case of hypnotism? Was it a case of actually using other people who were dressed up as these dead? In the first case, Chris, from your reading, there we have the father-in-law, someone known very well to William Reeves, the policeman who'd walked across the countryside to see this. And he sees him at 20 yards in the dusk. So there we could maybe start to make excuses. But as you say, there's this second extraordinary case where the father and son come face to face with the dead son and dead aunt looking through a pane of glass. And then in the background all the time, we have the fairies hanging around. We don't see the fairies at any point, but we hear them a couple of times. There are references to fairy voices, and there is the idea that the fairies are there controlling the dead, looking after the dead, guarding the dead, even holding the dead hostages. What were the fraudulent items that she was accused of taking from these people. Mary Doherty never took any money. However, she did take none monetary gifts. For the most part, food, particularly potatoes, tea, eggs, butter, some of those food which cost quite a lot in 19th century Ireland, also some tobacco and also items of clothing. She was weaning the dead back onto an earthly diet. There is the idea that they are with the fairies, they are spirits, And they cannot return to the world until they have eaten for a certain amount of time earthly food. So every single day, the niece of the family, Anastasia, would walk across the town of Caraconsort with a basket of food and she would hand it over to a ghost on the margins of the town. She would literally come face to face with a certain Tim Sheehan and pass in this basket of food. I mean, you just couldn't make it up. And in the background here, I think we have an an element of fairy belief that we just have to get out at the beginning. The idea that if you go to the world of fairy, the two terrible things you must never do, never dance with the fairies 
and never eat anything they offer you. And hanging in the background here is the idea that the dead had been living on a diet of fairy food. And now it was time to get them off. They had to go cold turkey and come back to the world by eating normal human food. It also reminds me of spiritualist beliefs that after the dead die, they're weakened and they have to be brought up to psychical strength before they can actually materialize in the seance. It's obviously not that particular belief, but it is similar. How do you strengthen a ghost? This is my complete ignorance. But if you're in a seance, <laughs> if, if I want to contact a dead grandparent, how, how do I strengthen the ghost? The medium projects their psychic force into mm. uh, the ghost, and that's the way they're able to build up the ectoplasm and materialize. There we have the sense that there are two worlds. There's a desire to communicate between the worlds, and in some way or other, there has to be a level of communication created. But it's not food. You've you've mentioned that the first rule of fairyland is not to eat or drink anything, or you'll be trapped there forever. Um, so these people who were allegedly dead and in fairyland or with the fairies were eating fairy food. Now, those who escaped reported that the fairy feasts were very tempting. They looked wonderful, but the fairy food had a glamour cast on it to make it appear delectable. For example, there was a story of a bride kidnapped by the Holderfolk. And after she was rescued, they said all the silver was still on the table but all the good food had turned into moss and toadstools and cow dung and toads. They take the essence of the best human foods and they leave behind, it's like a culinary changeling, some worthless likeness in its place. I love culinary changeling. (laughs) That's absolutely brilliant. Can I just throw in there an example from Ireland so people don't think we're just picking examples from hundreds of miles away? I have know of a very valuable source, and I'm not telling anyone where this source is, (laughs) but it's about someone who's brought off to feast with the fairies. And at the end of the meal, the glamour ends, and they discover that they've been eating insects and dead babies. Oh, I mean, really? So that's another level of nastiness that they said that when they rob the potatoes, the diggers find but rottenness and decay and the fairies will take the strength from the meat in the pot so that when put on the plate, it does not nourish. So what if you're stuck in fairyland, what do you eat if you if you don't want to be there indefinitely now? It was believed in Ireland and also in Newfoundland that these people stuck in fairyland returned to human homes to steal food. And they might even raid their own kitchens. Uh, one informant uh, in Barbara Rietti's book, Strange Terrain, says that there was a Belle Island woman who had a son who died. But everyone knew he'd become a fairy because every night she left bread and tea for him. And the next morning it was gone. Mm. And this parallels a a story I've got from Medina County, Ohio, a spiritualist medium. She was called Lottie Bader by the later Chronicle, but she was actually named Charlotte Bentley. She died of consumption in 1858. And a little bit before her death, she asked her mother for tea and toast. And after she died, a week later, the mother was awakened and she heard her daughter's voice and says, mother, I'm hungry. Could you make me tea and get me something to eat? So she made the tea and the toast. Her daughter said, put it on the table and go back to bed. And the next morning, the food had been eaten. And every Friday night for the next five years until her own death, 
Lottie's mother made supper for her dead daughter, and each Friday the ghost ate and drank. But in terms of ghost theology, I would interpret that as being an incomplete action. This classic idea that if we die, leaving something undone, or if there's something that we feel guilty about, we are anchored to the earth by this, and we have to keep coming back until, in mm. some ways, this is resolved. So I agree it's an interesting parallel, but for me it belongs more to the world of yeah. ghosts. It's not something that's... It's unusual, I'll grant you that, but it's not quite the same as the fairy cases, or is it? I think it is. The idea that the dead need food is a very old one. We've got food offerings put in Neolithic graves, and King Tut's tomb was full of embalmed ducks. And I think I remember the Greeks had tubes growing down into the graves where you could pour the libations to please the thirsty dead. Even today, of course, we've got the De los Muertos, where you put the favorite foods and drinks of the departed. So there is a very long history of hungry ghosts, the hungry dead. You know, they aren't necessarily ghosts. If they're actually eating food, it seems as though they're more corporeal. And yet, still with the fairies, we do seem to be at a different level in this sense, that the whole point of for example, the Belle Island case of leaving food for the dead son is that ultimately there is the hope that the son will be able to return, that the son is imprisoned yeah. with the fairies. Whereas to the best of my knowledge, this idea of giving food and drink to ghosts, it may be a way to satisfy them. It may be a way to placate them. No, mm. Don't come and eat me eat this food yeah but in the end there's no hope of bringing them back coming back yes you're right you're right it's different in that in that small sense but mm. I, I, clearly this is part of the same continuum of beliefs though yes in irish folklore also there's hungry ghosts were not just hungry but they were also cold and that's where those clothes the clothing comes in that um was given to be given to the dead i heard a recent presentation by a dr cloda tate i didn't get my clothes when i died and it spoke of the dead being buried in their shrouds or their own clothes and their best clothing being given to the neighbors of the poor so that the dead wouldn't return and complain that they were perished with cold for lack of clothing it was kind of like the Chinese Hungry Ghost Cat Festival when the paper clothes are burned to clothe the dead ancestors. Mm. So there's this this notion that they need food. They also need clothing. So if they're going to be brought back into the community, the bodily resurrection, they still have to have clothes. And I know that reading the testimony of, say, Mrs. Reeves, the wife of Constable Reeves, who was expecting her family to be resurrected, Either in or out of the body, there was a tradition that the living needed to take care of the continuing demands of the dead. And that might be prayers or masses for their repose, clothing to keep them warm, or food to bring them back. But even I, with my incomplete knowledge, have come across quite a few cases where there are references to the dead being out at night and being cold, and the idea being that you build up the fire there's this continuing concern for mm-hmm. the the well-being of the dead because, oh, the poor things, they're out there in this gale. Let's hope they can get some heat, leave the door ajar, right. this kind of thing. So right. there we connect to issues that we've looked at before in this podcast, but yeah. this connection between the living and the dead, and particularly the intimate connection between, say, a mother and a son. I'm glad you brought that particular section up because there were ghost hunters hungry for their own children. And they would, that was the thing that brought 
people back more than anything was concern for their children. Lady Gregory tells about a woman who died and left her child, and every night she'd come back and bring it out of the bed to the fire, and she'd comb it and wash it. And they said, at last, six men came and watched and stopped her at the door, and she went very near to tear them all asunder. But they got the priest, and he took it off of her. Well, the husband had got another wife, and the priest came and asked him, would he put her away and take the first again? And so he did, and he brought her to the chapel to be married to her again, and the whole congregation saw her there. Again, a very corporeal revenant. And perhaps with this, we could also add something else to the mix. If you live in West Island in 1864, the year of this case, if you live in Tipperary, where still there are strong fairy beliefs in the community, it's very important to have intermediaries who connect our world to the fairy world. And this isn't just because we want to get things from the fairies. It's because we have to make sure we don't annoy the fairies. And the person who does this are individuals like Mary Doherty. They're referred to with various terms, depending on whether it's English-speaking areas, Gaelic-speaking areas, but fairy man, fairy woman, fairy witch, and perhaps the most common, fairy doctors. And these were people who lived between the worlds. In a couple of cases, they actually claimed to be fairies. In most cases, though, they claimed that they lived among the fairies for a time. And they were often rather suspect individuals. They frequently ended up in legal cases. There's a fascinating book to be written on this. And my goodness, I'm tempted, but I'm not ah, quite sure. Catherine Briggs Prize is calling. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd. Yes, point well made. Okay, well, I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to think about this. The Catherine Briggs Prize on line one. Yeah. No. Um, okay. Okay. Maybe I'm weakening now. Maybe I'm weakening. <laughs> it's a fascinating subject. What we're really lucky with these individuals, in that we have oodles and oodles of references. Not so much from folklore, though they do appear in folklore and they appear in collections like Lady Gregory's, but from the newspapers, because, as I said, they constantly got themselves in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, they constantly found themselves in front of magistrates. And very often these cases, but very often these cases had a comical side. And so newspapers went to town with them in the silly season. And sometimes they had a very tragic side. The most famous example of this is the Bridget Cleary case where poor old Bridget Cleary in 1895 was burnt to death by a husband who believed she was a fairy changeling. There too, a fairy doctor was involved. But so we know a lot of these individuals and we know a lot of their darkest secrets because they come out in the courtroom. And this is the case too with Mary Doherty. We get a sense of all her different tricks, but also the fairy belief she's playing on like strings on a ukulele or a guitar. Mary Doherty was a newcomer to the area. She'd only moved to the town in the same year that she began bewitching the locals. That's right. It said actually she'd been there for about a year and a half. But yes, she was relatively new. And what you find with these fairy doctors is that semi-itinerant, uh -huh. they move around. And I suspect they move around because the local forces of law and order start to get a little bit antsy with them. But we know that she came to the town a year and a half before. She will have been, I suspect, from somewhere 
in Western Ireland. So she was probably in the same general area of Ireland. But for example, later on, she was sent to prison after this case. And when she left, she settled down in nearby Clonmel. So Mm -hmm. there are these different communities that these fairy doctors visit. And in the case of Mary, just to give you some a taste of her family life, we know she had two kids. We know she was in her late 30s or early 40s and that one of the kids was a baby. But her husband was actually blind. And her husband was a blind beggar who walked around the countryside. And one newspaper tells us that he made improbably large sums of money. The judge at the final case at the quarter session waits until the verdict comes in and then announces that actually the blind husband had dressed up And he had played the ghost in some of these cases. Now, whether this is true or not, I have no idea. But you have two people who are on the margins of society. Uh, You have a beggar, you have a healer, and they're people who use, let's say, unorthodox means in their day-to-day life. They very often have large personalities, to say the least. And we sometimes get hints of this with Mary. A couple of times she has outbursts in the courtroom She has no problems telling people what she thinks of them. Uh, One local reverend comes to minister to her and Mary tells him that if he drinks this file that she has, he too will be able to talk to the dead. Now, this is something you did not say to a 19th century (laughs) Episcopalian vicar in Ireland. And he, of course, was outraged. We also have a reference to her. Uh, beating a neighbouring woman within a couple of inches of her life. And everyone was scared to denounce her to the police because she was a witch and she could cause them harm. So have no doubt that in this community she had power, whether this was real supernatural power or just imagined power is another question. Yeah, reading her outbursts in court, she was not cowed by being in front of a magistrate at all. It was it was quite impressive. What did she call herself? Did she do we know what she called herself? Did she call herself a fairy woman or a fairy or did she claim to have been with the fairies? Right. We don't have those details. However, she does say with resentment towards the end of the life that people call me a witch. And Mm -hmm. so she clearly didn't like that term. She didn't seem to describe herself as a fairy because I think that is outrageous enough that that would have come out in court. So Mm -hmm. she was probably comfortable with the term fairy woman or maybe even fairy doctor. She certainly implied that she had contact with the fairies, though. Um, She is the mediator. And one of the fascinating things about the case is she creates this dead individual Uh, Captain Power, who was actually a magistrate himself 10 years before. Mm -hmm. And she claims that she's been in contact with Captain Power, who is also living with the fairies in the Wrath at Baladine. And this is where you you get the, the absolute splendor of the long con. But she alleges that Captain Power can write letters. And so the Reeves family, who want their dead to come back, start to write letters in red ink, to Captain Power, who then replies, and he gives instructions. And there's the idea that on earth, he was a powerful local landowner. And in death, he is a human enabler, let's say, in the fairy wrath. And he is negotiating with the fairy master race to try and get these five out of there. And so there are these letters sent backwards and forwards between the fairy dead and the living. I wish we had those letters read out in court, because in one case, they said, 
there's no point in reading them. They're complete incomprehensible nonsense. We do actually have a couple of sentences from uh, another Yeah, I saw the sentences. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, very badly written, abysmal spelling, not the kind of thing you would expect a, a resident magistrate to have written in the 19th century, far from it. And they were supposedly dictated by Mary to a local schoolmistress, I believe. And she, was, she wasn't told why she was supposed to write this out. I assume that means Mary was not able to write herself. That's right. So Mary actually went to two different women to get them to write these letters. And in the case of the schoolmistress, she said, write it in a male's hand. Um, <laughs> and this this woman, the schoolmistress, may have been protecting her own back here, but she said Mary refused to tell me what she right. was using it for. Yeah. However, the, the fact I go away with here, if this is the writing of a 19th century schoolmistress, God help her children. Yeah. <laughs> because the couple of sentences we have do not suggest great levels of literacy. The other part of the letters, I believe, was that Captain Power was supposed to give either, I think, Constable Reeves some land. He was somehow related by marriage to them, and, and he was promising to give them, they were going to bring some gold with them when they came back from the dead, and also get title to land. Right. And this is where I think we come to the second part of Mary's long con. And this was the bit that was never played out. I suspect that had Mary been given the space to do this, the Reeves family would have actually lost quite a lot of money. Oh. So what she was creating was the idea that you get a double bonus here. There are five of your dead, three of Mary Reeves's sister, her son and her father, they're coming back. So this is good. But because they're coming back from the fairies and because the fairies have access to all kinds of wealth and all kinds of power, they will bring back some physical wealth. But that actually wasn't that important. What really matters was that they would bring back with them title deeds of other dead people <laughs> who had gone over to the fairies. And the, can you imagine the legal cases that would have resulted oh from this? And the Reeves family were convinced by this. And Mary was actually giving names of places on the south bank of the sewer, the river that forms the border between Tipperary and Waterford. And she claims there would be all kinds of estates, not least from the Marquis of Waterford. Now, having seen other fairy doctors cases, and Chris, you and I both having come across many 19th century cons, I suspect what will have happened down the road is that we will have got closer and closer to the moment that these five dead are going to return. But there will have been the classic Spanish prisoner scenario, whereby the fairies need some gold to be able to write out the title deeds. Mm -hmm. Captain Power will have written and he will say, yeah, the fairies say they'll do it, but only if I can give them 12 sovereign coins or something mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. And given how deep the Reeveses were in, yeah. I'm sure that William Reeves will have found 12 sovereign coins or whatever it was. He will have given them to Mary. They will have made an appointment for midnight the day after at the fairy wrath. And of course, early the next morning, Mary will have decamped with her blind husband and she will have last been seen on the road to another county in the West. This was not allowed to play out because of the diligence of a superintendent heard who was horrified when he heard what was happening and intervened. But I'm very curious to know 
to what extent Mary herself believed in fairies and uh-huh. believed in fairy powers. Because again and again, we have these fairy men, women, doctors, and again and again, they swindle their clients while also often trying to do good. There's this strange mix of an attempt to reach out and change lives and an attempt to defraud people. And I'm always really curious to to what extent they believe in what they're doing or to what extent they are just utter shits. I mean, really mercenary, (laughs) cruel people feeding on the fears and sorrows of grieving parents or parents who have a sick child is another classic example. What would your sixth sense tell you there? She seems to have had some kinds of legitimate powers, as it were, uh, in terms of she was noted as a cow witcher. She, She cured cattle. And she seemed to have cured some people. Um, She also sold love charms. Uh, She also apparently was a police informant. I think it's also fair to say, talking about legitimate powers, that whether we give this a supernatural weight or not, she is just the kind of person who would have been capable of hypnotizing someone. She had Hmm. such force of personality. She was clearly the kind of individual who walked in a room and people noticed. You gave her a stage she was going to take the starring role. Yes, you're right. Um, But she also was an herbalist. So she had some kind of perhaps actual skill in curing legitimately. A very good example of this is she came into contact with the Reeves originally because they had a daughter who had some kind of unspecified illness. And the daughter would be very disturbed in the night. And often she would actually wake up and apparently sleepwalk. But Mary said that she could cure her. And she managed, I think they say, for two or three months to keep the child quiet at night. And this was done through giving her infusions. And as Mm -hmm. we know, in any countryside anywhere in the world, there are plants, there are berries, there are fungi that, if used in the correct way, can have strong effects for good and for bad on the body. And Mary will certainly have been an expert in those things. So she didn't really need to call the fairies into the case. She was good on her own. How? Why did she go to the fairy side, as it were? This is something that we've run across in other cases. If you have supernatural powers or claim to have supernatural powers, you need to get them from someone. Now, it can be the magic python in the temple. It can be the bear god in the forest. It can be the familiar living under the bed, thinking of England in the 17th, 18th century. Mm. Or it can be the fairies if you live in Highland, Scotland or Mm. Cornwall or Western Ireland in the 19th century. I mean, sitting round a fire cross-legged and talking about Jungian psychology and the deep unconsciousness is just (laughs) not going to swing it. You need to be able to point to local powers that are giving you this strength, right. this force. You so need that authority. You need the authority. And her authority yeah. was the fairies. And she had chosen one of the few places left in Britain and Ireland where this authority mattered by 1864. Chris, I mean, mm-hmm. another fascinating aspect to this case that we went over a little bit quickly at the beginning is this very strange idea that you die in a farmhouse in Tipperary in 1864 And there's a serious danger that you will end up with the fairies. 
Now, this is a very unusual idea, and it's difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult to parallel from Britain, even from Highland Scotland, where you would expect similar ideas. No, it is rare, yes. Yeah. I was interested that one of the retired policemen in the case, his name was Mr. Hayes, stated it is not so extraordinary for people to be raised from the dead. An amazing sentence. And I'm like, well, how many instances were there? How was this not extraordinary? Extraordinary, but in Ireland, the departed seem to sort of flicker in and out of reality like a will o' the wisp. They're dead, they're ghosts, they're alive again. No, they're really dead. Then he was really alive. There's such ambiguity about this, and it, it just staggers me. One of Lady Gregory's stories, uh, she said she was told by a Mrs. Sheridan that her son came into the room in the dark. She said, I saw it was my son that I lost, he that went to America, James. He didn't die. He was whipped away. I knew he wasn't dead, for I saw him that one day on the road to Gord on a coach. And he looked down and he said, that's my poor mother. Oh. And he came in here. I couldn't see him, but I knew him by his talk. And he said, it's asleep she is. And he put his two hands on my face and I never stirred. And he said, I'm not far from you now. Extraordinary. Oh, it's just painful. Yeah, painful, painful. It it, it was not sure where he was. He was taken by the fairies, but he mm -hmm. wasn't lost. Anything I'm going to say after that extraordinary story is going to bring the tone of our podcast down. But just trying to be very practical and earthly and materialistic about this. We do have a number of cases from Southern Ireland, particularly Southwestern Ireland from the 19th century, where the dead literally came back and where they turned up in communities and took up their roles again. Now, quite what you make of this is another question, but I'll just give you one instance, which has just gone around and around in my mind for years. A man loses his wife who goes to live with the fairies And at a certain point, she returns to him, but he's married again. I mean, so we have the old wife and the new wife living together. And you will say, well, this is a folk story. No, this is a letter that was written by a young, highly literate woman in southwestern Ireland to Thomas Crofton Croker, the great Irish folklore writer, describing the woman who she herself had met. Now, my interpretation of this is that this is an intruder who had decided to play out this idea that she was actually, she'd come back from the dead, but she was actually someone else. And there are quite a few interesting cases from history, not least involving children who go missing. And then someone claims at age 25 that they are that missing child and they're adopted back into the family and subsequently it's discovered that they're not actually the child but the family of course is very vulnerable on these points and so they're very likely to accept an imposter Uh, barbara rietti again tells another story about a woman who died and she was buried, but she appeared in the kitchen several nights afterwards getting water bread and molasses on the third night her husband saw her and she explained she'd been taken by the good people. She had to eat, but the next night would be the last and she'd be gone forever unless he could grab her at the gate. Uh, She says, you can't touch me now because there's hundreds of fairies around me now. So the husband grabbed her at the gate 
although she, quote, tore him up. Later, the priest restored her to health. And when they dug up the grave, they found a broom in the coffin. Here we have to go into the, let's say, the mechanics of how this happened. The first thing to say, and I think something that causes a lot of confusion, is that the fairies are not the dead. They are, if you wanted an equivalent in Christian terms, they are the angels, but the dead go to live with them. But they are a different type of being. Now, it's very possible that in previous centuries, the fairies actually were the dead. And this is something that we talked about last time. But how do you get the dead from their bed into the fairy raft. There seem to be two different ways in which this happens. And I don't know to what extent I'm being too systematic about this, or is this something that varied from place to place, or did these just blur together? The first way is changelings. Someone seems to die, but they're not actually dead because their body lying in the bed is not really a body. It's a broom a spade, branch in some cases, even a Mm. twig for children, which has been magicked into the form of a corpse. And of course, human beings being so naive about these fairy matters, they put them in the coffin and the coffin's taken to the graveyard. It's buried, but later it's discovered that that wasn't actually the corpse and the person is alive in the fairy wrath. And I'm not even really sure to what extent you could call them the dead at that point. And again, if you think this is just folk stories, we have fascinating 19th century cases where, for instance, in one case, a member of the family comes riding up on a horse, stops a funeral procession and demands that the coffin be opened because he had a dream (laughs) last night that revealed that this wasn't the real corpse. And they open the coffin and to everyone's embarrassment, there's the real corpse. The second way that the <laughs> it's great, isn't it? The second way that the dead seem to arrive at the fairies is that they authentically die. They really die. And then in some ways, the fairies capture their spirits. And maybe this is because of the cunning of the fairies, but in as much as this appears in our sources, it appears to have something more to do with the fact that in some ways their lives were unsatisfactory or incomplete. Yeah, they died too soon or they they died died too soon in a tragic, horrible way. Right. And this is something, of course, we would recognize from ghost lore as well. So this will be my two explanations as to how human beings get sucked into the world of fairy and then need to be brought back. Can you explain this in easier terms or give us some background to it? Well, first, I want to just do a couple quotes from the Irish Folklore Commission. Very few die at all. Most are taken and no one dies, but the good people take him away and leave something else in his place. So those go for the the two ways that you're talking about of entering fairyland when you're dead. But I also wonder how many of these empty coffins or the broom in the coffin or the stick in the coffin were the result of Irish resurrectionists, body snatchers. There was a thriving trade in corpse for the dissecting rooms of the medical schools in Dublin, and bodies were even exported to supply the British anatomists, and they didn't care where they got the corpses. All were fair game. Uh, There's a theme throughout Irish folklore of suspicion as to whether someone is actually dead or not, and I wonder if it had to do with the intense fear of body snatchers. I mean, I can see that being an intense fear. And I can also see in very practical terms that if you steal the body of a 25-year-old, you were clearly 
fill the hole in again. And then if someone does dig it up, say, to put a Y for mother in, and they find the coffin is empty or there's no skeleton there, then of course this will feed into those kind of beliefs. There's also another point, and I saw this in a, an essay called Orpheus and Orpheo, The Dead and the Taken by Dorina Allen Wright. And she suggests that this whole notion of being taken might have comforted families in, in cases of unexpected or untimely deaths that, quote, to die was not to perish, but to join the fairy host, which I find intriguing in a, in a Catholic society, a predominantly Catholic society, because you were supposed to, well, you'd have to pass through purgatory, but eventually you'd get to, you know, heavenly glory and with the angels. I've come across a couple of references where Catholics equate the fairy realm, not to heaven or hell, but to purgatory. And right. I suspect this is an intellectual gloss, but it may have been a way to make sense of local beliefs to deal with them as best as possible. I'm, I'm not really sure. Another thing to say about having your spirit over there in the wrath, you know, your, my son is no longer alive. He's in the wrath. Well, that could actually work to your advantage. There's a really interesting case, which is the closest parallel I know to the, the Doheny trial by Lady Wilde. Uh, this is Oscar's mother. She talks about a case where a young man out farming lies down to have a rest and just die. It's such an unexpected death that everyone says, oh, he's with the fairies now. The family pay a fairy doctor to bring him back. And the fairy, the fairy doctor puts on a great display at midnight on the fairy wrath. And actually, the sun appears. And again, is this mass hypnotism? Is it an actor who's pulled in to perform this role? And he announces that he wants to stay with the fairies because being there, he has more power to help his family. And that's something, and here I don't want to cross swords with any high Anglicans or Catholics, but that's something I think that Christianity offers on a on a minor scale. Theologically speaking, we can pray to our holy dead, but the idea in general Christian society that the dead will come back and assist us is rather reduced. Whereas, of course, if you've got a wrath a mile down the road where your son is living and you believe that all aspects of the agricultural calendar are influenced by the fairies and crops and cows and what your neighbours are getting up to and whether your your next son is going to be ill or not in the cot, then that sort of thing starts to be something which I can imagine is consoling in more ways than one, because not only do they survive death, but they're there at hand to help you in some ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be more legitimately or consistently helpful than perhaps the good people who are a bit fickle sometimes. <laughs> You're very polite about this, Chris. Um, I mean, to, to, to describe Irish fairies as a bit fickle, I think is about as polite as we can be. I don't um, want them coming after me. <laughs> you don't want them coming. Yeah, I, I like this. I like this. Yes, the Irish fairies can be a little bit fickle sometimes. Um, I, I love this. I've never seen that clearly, but you're absolutely right. Having a human intermediary is great because they're human. They have your values, your beliefs, your emotions, whereas the fairies are ultimately, they look like us, but they are alien in some sense. They're always, their logic, their rules, their laws, they're beyond our understanding. Yeah, I like this a lot. Well, the good people were often conflated with the souls of the dead. Yeah, an anonymous viewer of Jeremiah Curtin's Tales of the Fairies and of the Ghost World said, 
the attributes of a ghost, that is to say the spirit of a dead man, are indistinguishable from those of a fairy. And that's too much ambiguity for me. I think of the, the dead and the fairies as separate races. The dead inhabit fairyland, but they're not fairies. But Andrew Lang, the Reverend Robert Kirk, thought that fairyland was a kind of Hades or home of the dead. And to be fair, those who visit both of those places can't eat if they want to wish to if they wish to escape. So there's mm-hmm. some some coherence there. I want to know two things about Mary. What happened to her in her afterlife after after she went to jail, I understand. And how did she do it? So let's start with the first part. What happened to her? Right. Well, you can imagine that someone like Mary gets noticed. She seems to have spent two years in prison rather than one year. And this is mysterious because she was sentenced Mm. to one year hard Mm labour. And all I can imagine is that she hit someone or did something and found her sentence being stretched out. This, This would be my guess. I'm really not sure. She leaves prison and she settles in Clonmel, which is the the big Tipperary town near Carrick. And she sees seems to have been in a much more impoverished state than she'd been at Carrick. And we come across her a couple more times. In the late 1860s, she gets in a fist fight with a man who was mistreating a young woman who was in Mary's company. And Mary, who doesn't seem to have been afraid of anyone or anything, basically told this guy to go to hell and he knocked a couple of her teeth out. And she dragged him in front of the judge and this man was sentenced to several months in prison, uh, also had to pay Mary. And there we have some lovely lines because the judge gently makes fun of Mary and she talks about the events of a few years before when she swindled the Reeves family. And there's one sad line that she's asked if she knows what happens to the Reeves and she says, no, I don't know what happened to that poor policeman's family. These are her exact words. And then about six, seven years later, she appears in another case, apparently a family from um, Clonmel had left to go to emigrate to England and they'd left their daughter with Mary, which is not something I think I would do. But um, <laughs> Mary had become very sick. She was no longer able to look after the child. And so the child was put in the workhouse. Mm-hmm. And whether this was just another of Mary's many, many cons or whether she was genuinely ill, I don't know. I can say this, Chris, and I feel a bit foolish, but I feel I need to share this. In the years that follow, there were a number of cases where women called Mary Doherty get in trouble in lots of different parts of Ireland. And Mm. I just cannot believe it is our Mary Doherty, whereas in these cases that I've just mentioned, it certainly is. My suspicion is she died in the 1870s. But I like the idea that the spirit of Mary Doherty lives on <laughs> in Donegal, in Wexford. In, there are these various accounts of Mary Doherty's getting into trouble. As to how she did it, I personally think that she used stand-ins, dangerous as that was. And I think that she depended on a combination of wishful thinking 
a naivety on the part of this family. I'll point to the example that the family never saw and talked to their dead at the same time. Sometimes they talked to them through closed doors. Sometimes they saw them even very close, as you said. But even in that remarkable case with the window, the young boy who had died had died blessing when he was seven years old. He died Mm -hmm. in 1857, seven years before. He also was called William. And the father, when he was asked, what his son looked like. He said he'd grown. He was probably about 10 years old to look at him. And it looked as if the fairies had been taking care of him. He looked in a good way. And it's fascinating that William Reeves went with his son, Terence, and his son, Terence, was, I think, eight years old. And Mm -hmm. as soon as Terence sees the two figures, Terence says, Daddy, look, there is William and Aunt Margaret. The son had never seen Aunt Margaret, and he'd been one years old when his brother William had died. And so clearly, in the case of the son, this is all playing out through suggestion. In yeah, other words, he's been he's, primed. He's been yeah. primed. He's been primed. Mm-hmm. This is it. Mm-hmm. And so I suspect there were actors used. I suspect, too, that the judge was correct when he said the blind husband stood in in a couple of these cases. The other possibility is it's some extreme form of hypnotism. But in that case, Mary was a genius. Uh, What do Mm. you think? What would you make of it? Well, the suggestion that the husband dressed up is is probably a good one. Um, But you would have to have other people involved. Yes. Yes. And that, as you say, is extremely risky. It's a small place. It's, It's not... Word gets out. Constable Reeves said she also showed him others of his friends. Hayes deposed that she brought up before him several of his friends and connections who's been dead for years. What did she know about people who'd been dead for years, how they dressed, how they looked? There's one other odd detail. At the end of the whole thing, they said the supplying of food to the dead men still goes on. Yes. The niece of Reeves going regularly with her basket at nightfall to where the resurrectionists assemble. And it is curious that although many times watched by policemen and town watchmen, as also by others, neither the dead men nor their impersonators can be seen. And yet the basket is always delivered. I mean, it's credible. But for me, for me, the actor sounds better, but. It's so risky. And and she does not strike me as a woman that took a lot of risks uh, as a woman who wanted. Well, she did ask the the two people to write the letters. Um, For me, the most extraordinary thing about this case is how little known it is in terms of the number of words written about this in the Irish and British press. We easily get to, say, 40,000 words, which is a good length book. There is lots and lots and lots of material there. The only other case involving fairies from Ireland which gets anything like this is the Bridget Cleary case. That that case and that case alone, it actually gets more coverage. And yet the Bridget Cleary case has been written about extensively by very good scholars over the years. This case has been practically ignored. I mention it in a couple of my articles. The British scholar Andrew Snedden also mentions it in one of his articles. But apart from that, it's almost gone without notice since the 1870s. 
there's really very, very little. I produced the book to go with this podcast where I got all the sources together. And the book is called The Fairy Witch of Carrick on Sur, a source book for a 19th century resurrectionist. And it's all the different accounts of Mary. And what I like about bringing the sources together is you get perhaps the richest account of any 19th century fairy man or woman. And so this is something that is out there. It's a print-on-demand book. It's in the Puka books and pamphlet series. And I should say that we now have professional designers doing the books. So the quality of the books has gone up several levels. As to Irish fairies, um, let me throw a couple of ideas out. And then, Chris, perhaps you could give us your own favourite books. I'm still a real sucker for Evans Wentz's The Fairy Uh Faith in Celtic Countries, and particularly Mm -hmm. his section on Ireland. There's also a second book that I'm very, very fond of by a man named Dermot McManus. It was written in various versions, but the version that most people can get hold of today is The Middle Kingdom, The Fairy World. Yes, I love that book. It's a really, really great book because it's on that borderline you and me enjoyed between folklore and Fortiana. Mm. There's lots on folklore, but at the same time, there are very real lived experiences of men and women. And it's not just experiences of men and women in Ireland. For the most part, it's 20th century Ireland. This is a period when, for many people, fairy beliefs were already in rapid decline. And But he manages to gather together these earliest, early 20th century experiences. And he's a very, very good writer. It's one of my favourite folklore books. It is. It's brilliant. Chris, any uh, to add? Um, I'm fond of Meeting the Other Crowd mm. by Eddie Lenahan and Visions and Beliefs in the West of Ireland by Lady Gregory. That's I mean, just kind of a standard. Well, and Chris, well, I've really enjoyed talking about Mary. Do you have another reading for us to play us out? I do. This is a transcript of the testimony of Mrs. Mary Reeves, the wife of Constable William Reeves. She mentions the letters supposedly sent by the late Captain Power. So Mary Reeves says, Before this, William Mullins, my father, came to me on the night he returned alive to the earth about the hour of 12 o'clock and said he would come back to this world in perfect form. He came in his own appearance to me in my own house. I sent bread, tea, and new milk to my father, my child, and my three sisters, all of whom had died. Margaret Mullins died seven years ago, Ellen 11 years, and Bridget two years and a half since. I know they are alive, for I heard their voices. The dead people took very little at first. My father told me to send the food. No later than yesterday, my child saw his uncle Tom Sheehan standing with my father, William Mullins. I think my father is alive, and to the best of my belief, it was Captain James Power who wrote these letters, for I've seen his writing before he died. He's dead now, she was asked. He is, sir, but he is in the moat of Ballydean. His bones were buried in Rathgormick. Captain Power is not on this earth in the flesh, but he is looking after the rest. The captain is now sitting at the moat, and if he called his hounds together, they would come to him. I heard some of my sisters call me at my own door, Mary, 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 three times by name. I did not answer. It was moonlight, and I knew they were with the gentry then. I have not the slightest doubt that they're alive now. My son, William, who died, was talking to me lately at my own door for three quarters of an hour. I did not ask him inside. I would if I could. One of the good people called him away. You've been listening to Bogger and Banshee, a supernatural podcast. 
If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review as it helps other people find us. Those cursed algorithms.